Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the Super Bowl in the books, I wanted to let you know about all of our coverage across the site. We have Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Roger Sherman, and more breaking down every aspect of the game, including winners and losers, key plays from the game, and the halftime show performance. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube channel where Kevin Clark talked to Amari Cooper on Slow News Day, and Roger Sherman chatted with players from each team for their thoughts leading up to the game. Be sure to watch and subscribe to our channel on youtube.com slash The Ringer. Don't paint me as a victim. I am much more interesting than that. Don't walk away from me, diamond! I can't do it anymore. I can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. I'm Sean Fennessy. And I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about a movie called The Wife. We are here. It is the wife of Palooza. Amanda, are you ready to talk about the movie that we denied for months and months? Maybe not of our own volition. Yes. I'm extremely ready. I even read a book for this. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who are listening to this show for the first time, I will briefly explain a bit that we have been running on this show, which is at the top of every show, I ask Amanda if she has seen the movie The Wife. She has not until now. I had not until now. Over time, this became a bit about how this was the all-time plane movie. Many people who listen to this show are sharing with us their experiences watching this show on United or Delta or American or JetBlue. Thank you very much for sharing those experiences with us. We have had a similar experience. I did not watch it on a plane. Amanda, where did you watch the movie? I watched it at home, uh, courtesy of a screener that your friend and mine, Becky Landau, gave to oh. me. And I just She has been checking in. I have a lot of friends who have been checking in every week, in addition to the many kind listeners on Twitter who have been checking in. So thanks for all your support. <laughs> we finally did it. I think we should also just, to explain the bit, this is a movie and specifically a performance by Glenn Close that has been in the Oscars conversation since the beginning. Definitely. Since, since the dawn of time. Since the dawn of time. And it was impossible to see this movie. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in your office one day, I think in like September, and was like, yo, have you seen The Wife? And <laughs> you were like, I mean, no. that's really how it started. And, and you we had hadn't. not. No. And it was, you couldn't go to a screening. You couldn't go to a movie theater. You couldn't get it on demand. You couldn't get it on a streaming service. It was not put on planes until November or December. That's right. And, you know, also having to buy a plane ticket to see a movie is a certain privilege, if mm -hmm. you will. So, I mean, this became a bit because it's bits are good and thanks to everyone who played along, but also because it highlights the way that sometimes certain things get caught in the Oscar narrative completely independent of the film or the quality of the film or people even seeing it. Yeah, and this film was not released by a tiny company funded by a secretive billionaire who buried it under uh, the ocean. You know, it, it was released by Sony Pictures Classics. It made a little bit of money, made about $8 million in its theatrical run, which is not bad. But I didn't see a single theater in which it was playing. And it was living in, like you said, almost this amniotic bubble of Oscar hype, and there was very little conversation about the movie itself. I didn't even know, and I'm sure we will talk about the novel upon which this film is based, written by Meg Wolitzer. Is that right? Yes. Um, I didn't know about that book. Uh, I didn't really know very much about the filmmaker, Bjorn Runga. Uh, I didn't really know very much about anybody involved in this except for Glenn Close's Oscar odds. And I will say, without getting too far ahead of myself, I now understand why I didn't hear anything about this movie. Mm -hmm. Because the movie's not very good. No. And it's it's not that it's 
boring per se. It's actually kind of interesting to me. You know, Bobby, our producer, came in and was like, I really doubled up with the Super Bowl and the wife last night, one of the most boring nights of my life. Uh, I I think that the wife does actually reveal some interesting things about kind of like what we think an Oscar performance is and what we think a, a story about a strong woman is too, which I'm sure we'll unpack a bit here. Yeah, I got some takes there. Um, but just generally speaking, did you think this was a good movie, Amanda? I did not think it was a good movie. I thought it was a very watchable movie. Mm-hmm. I understand why it's a plane movie and I understand why there have been a lot of sightings of people watching it on planes. Like I said, I watched it on a screener at home. Uh, historically, I'm terrible at that, as listeners of the podcast know, but I did not buy anything on Amazon during the watching of this movie. Impressive. I really didn't second screen that much. I was like, oh, I, you know, I kind of want to know what's happening. Part of that is because it, as you mentioned, fits into a certain genre of movie, which is the people talking at each other in rooms, Oscar drama. Yes. And I'm conditioned to like those and watch those. You kind of know the beats. It was familiar without ever having, I had not read the book and I obviously had not seen The Wife before I saw The Wife. So I thought it was easy to watch. Yeah, there is, it is there's a comfort food aspect yeah. to it. Um, I was, I watched it with my wife, pardon the pun, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> and I was, as we were watching it, I was kind of setting her up for the beats that were coming. I was like, in about two minutes, we will have a scene in which yeah. Glenn Close throws a book at Jonathan Price. And lo and behold, something like that happened. They, they really kind of set us up in very clear ways. It was telegraphed. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something okay about a telegraphed drama because we don't have as many telegraphed dramas as we used to. I do think that there is a an inherent clunkiness to the way that this story is told. It's really poorly told. And I think there are a lot of structural issues that we can talk about, but primarily that a third of the movie and sort of the crucial third of the movie is t- told in flashback with different actors. And it undermines most of the plot and motivation for Glenn Close's performance. And we'll talk more about this as well, about not great Oscar movies that still yield great performances. And that's kind of a time-honored tradition. Mm. Even in this uh, year, uh, I won't name names, but it is a movie with a question in the title. And (laughs) I think that this this actually undermines the performance for me. I think the, the lack of quality and how the movie is made and the motivations are conveyed, the performance doesn't come together. And I think that's that's unusual. Yeah, I mean, I think as we've watched Oscar season go along and we've seen Glenn Close now give a couple of acceptance speeches, primarily at the Golden Globes mm-hmm. and the SAG Awards, I think we've seen her essentially align her character in the film as sort of representative of her career and her work as a woman and her life as a woman, which is to say she's accomplished, she's talented, she's sort of present for big moments, but is never the central figure. And that is also one of the themes of this story. I don't know if that's the theme ultimately of this novel. Um, But the idea that there is someone behind a man who is doing all of the legwork. Now, whether that legwork is creative or emotional or just functional in life, it's kind of a time-honored story that's been told. It's a a bit of a cliche, I would say. Um, I think it's interesting that Glenn Close has wholly adopted that theme as her awards campaign theme. Because I would say Glenn Close, as an actress is not really a, like, play-it-to-the-back kind of woman. You know, she is the star fatal attraction. She is, I will not be ignored. That is Glenn Close's persona as a performer. So I find, like, a little bit of cognitive dissonance in this role of this woman who is very sort of very quiet and sort of simmering under the surface but has this wellspring of creativity underneath her. It doesn't totally align for me. 
I agree with that in terms of Glenn Close, the awards campaigner, and this character. I also think just within the performance itself, there are two people. There is the simmering traditional wife who, you know, wear the glasses and is taking care of all the logistics of everything. And I think Glenn Close is tremendous in those moments. Um then she goes into turbo mode, and yeah. she's definitely fatal attraction, Glenn Close, and she is playing it to the back of the room and is yelling, and part of it is that the movie doesn't connect those two people. You don't understand why. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit about women being overlooked and behind every great man, blah, blah, blah. Sure. I actually, I don't mean to dismiss those things. We should talk about them, because I think the ideas in this movie are really interesting, but the movie does not <laughs> explain... Just ghost writing an entire canon of books over the course of 40 years is like slightly different than being willing to take a backseat in someone's life. And it doesn't really connect them. And you don't really you can you know where the rage is coming from. But for me, it feels from two different parts. Yeah, I mean, let's just back up a little bit and and sort of share a synopsis of this film. Mm -hmm. If you're listening, it probably means you've either seen this film or you are interested in us talking about this film and are never going to watch it. God bless you. I can't say I would recommend it necessarily. So The Wife is essentially the story of uh, a, a writer named Joe Castleman and his wife, Joan Castleman. And Joe and Joan uh, wake up one morning in, I guess the movie starts with them essentially having sex, Mm -hmm. which is a deeply unfortunate sex scene. Mm -hmm. But we can talk about that a little Mm -hmm. bit later. Uh, Ultimately, they wake up the next morning. Joe finds out he has been uh, awarded the Pulitzer Prize. No, excuse me, the Nobel Peace Prize for literature. And What's the Nobel Prize for literature? I don't think it's the Peace Prize for literature, is it? I don't know. How do they do that? I don't know. Okay. Can I just tell you also in the book, it's a different prize? Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a lesser prize. I have some questions about that. Nevertheless... He's awarded a grand prize in which he has to travel to Scandinavia to be feted by uh, international dignitaries. Mm -hmm. And that sets the stage for this sort of 50-year history of the relationship between the Castlemans and how they met when Joe was a professor and Joan was his student and how Joe identified Joan's talent. But Joe had big ideas, quote-unquote, while Joan had writing talent and a sort of gift for language. And we see over time this very sort of uneasy alliance that they've created creatively. Um, Needless to say, it is revealed that Joan is, in fact, the author of all of Joe's books. I still don't really understand the psychology of this agreement that they've made. Um, totally agree. And, and that's a problem. It, it is, It is to me, the central problem of the movie. Yes. That there's, it's never totally clear why they arrive up, upon this. And they, they give us a couple of examples. They show us a young, uh, a woman played by Elizabeth McGovern who plays a novelist in, like, looks, I think it's the 50s or maybe the late 40s. It's the 50s, which is crucial for feminism. Okay. Anyway, continue. Um, perhaps you can share more well, about you know, that. But it's just the timing of... They give us these sort of yeah. breadcrumbs for why Joan Castleman never pursued a full stop career as an author. Maybe something, some ideas about where she came from, the sort of waspy nature of her background right. and the fact that maybe many people didn't think she would have anything to say. And there are scenes, sort of uh, stagey scenes in, in a publishing house in which editors are saying things like, yeah, but it's written by a woman, Joe, and nobody wants to hear what a woman thinks about a, a novel. <laughs> and, you know, just very phony kind of stagey actorly setups for stuff that we, we understand to sort of be tacitly clear in the history of American literature. Now, there were female novelists in the 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s yeah. and 2000s. So just on its face, the premise of the movie, I find a little faulty. I completely agree. I find it both interesting and faulty because there is one scene, and it's like, as you said, it's really, really 
stagey and I don't want to say hacky, but they're really, it's a lot of like pull quotes in people's mouths, if that makes sense. And it's, um, it's a female novelist at the time who has not been successful. And she says to the young uh, Joan character, they don't want to hear from women. They don't want bold prose or thoughts from women. It just doesn't, they don't want to hear when it's a woman, it, it changes the way it's received. And I think that's true and an interesting idea. And I think that like, that's even true now that whether it's a book or a movie or someone talking on a podcast, if you've ever commented to someone about how her voice sounds, you're kind of doing the same thing That's because true. people receive from men and women differently. We're conditioned to do it. And it's that's mostly bad. Sometimes it's just is what it is. So I think that's an interesting idea, but they don't develop it at all. And they do not develop how the character receives that information or processes it or makes the decision to do what she does or feels about the decision after the fact. They're just kind of like, well, one person told her that she won't be taken seriously as a writer. And so then she threw her whole life away. So let's use this as an opportunity to segue into the novel, because I suspect that the novel, which you have read and I have not, and I will never, uh, at least whether it gives us more depth to understand why these characters do all of these things. Yes, it does. Okay, I recommend it. It's by Meg Wolitzer. It's uh, 200 pages. Breezy read. I read it this weekend. And crucially, it's in the first person. It's told from Joan's narration throughout. And so... In her head. In her head. It, the present, the flashbacks, she's connecting everything. It's her view of Joe. She's explaining all of it. And so, you know, it both makes the story more, more about her and obviously gives her room to connect that speech and her fears and the nature of marriage. This is a lot more, it fleshes out the creative aspects of it more and just the fear. And there's like one very, very depressing, but well-written passage that I read last night that's just like, no one would love a strong woman writer. I don't want to be the person out in front. It's too much. Like, no man will like me. No person will take me seriously. Um, And which is playing into what I said about the 50s feminism. There's another passage where it's like, why didn't I just wait 10 years for the women's movement to come along? And then I could have been my own writer and been taken seriously. So it explains the timing, it explains the fear, it explains the motivation creatively, and also explains, it connects the idea of the wife in a marriage sense a bit more as well. So it is also about a marriage. So one of the primary flaws to me of the movie, which I think is probably reflected somewhat in the book too, is just kind of what Joan sees in Joe and why she's willing to subjugate herself completely, creatively, mm-hmm. emotionally, in all of these different ways, even though she's obviously a brilliant woman, mm-hmm. for a guy... Who sucks. Who's a schmuck, you yeah. know? I mean, he's just not... He's obviously sort of like on the surface intelligent and willing to seem interesting to a, a, a classroom full of Smith College students, but not actually a deep or thoughtful or useful person. He's a narcissist. He is vain. He's shallow. He's just not that interesting and it speaks badly of Joan Castleman that she becomes enraptured by this guy for sort of no good reason and sees him at his worst all the time Mm -hmm. throughout the film and I assume in the book and that's there's just there's a a missing link there yeah it does not establish their relationship at all and especially when you make it take it out of the first person in the film and you make it about both of them you have to understand their connection and how they've wound up in the back of the limo kind of bitching at each other or else you're just judging them. And I found myself judging both of them throughout the movie, which is not 
the intent of the movie, I would guess. Yeah, I guess that does raise the interesting question of does the wife have to be heroic in any meaningful way? Or is it okay that these are just kind of messy, flawed people in a novel? Well, the final climactic scene, I was thinking a little bit about, I don't think that she has to be the hero, though I think the movie thinks that she's the hero. And I think Glenn Close's performance also thinks that she's the hero, though I guess when you're playing a character, you got to be on that character's side or else. I mean, I'm no, I'm not a professional actor, but I do understand that to be the general gist of it. But I am, um, I think it is more complicated than that. It's some of, some of this is her fault. Yes. I, at least the character, at least that's what, how I responded to the final scene of like, you know, there is no accountability for either of them for their choices. And some of that, again, I really just think is, The movie making and when it's two different actors much younger playing the same people, you can't establish whatever connection and chemistry on screen, which is often used to to depict relationships on a screen. You you just kind of people create like a connection on screen and they don't really have an opportunity to do that beyond the one at the end. So, yeah, but but it doesn't reckon with any of the choices either. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm not necessarily put off by a difficult man or a difficult woman in a, in a film, uh, it's just unfortunate that their sort of difficult nature is never really, like, unpacked. Yeah. It's never really unbound from what we see from the people on the screen. I mean, as a movie, I think that this is, like, deeply unremarkable. And that's fine, because, like, 99% of movies are mm-hmm. deeply unremarkable. The The sort of, like, construction, the pieces that fit in here all feel a little bit like Glenn Close tic-tac-toe. So Bjorn Runga is a Swedish director who I've never heard of, Mm -hmm. who I think it feels like was hired because much of this film takes place in Stockholm. (laughs) Um, And and I I honestly can't figure out another reason. I mean, he did work with Roy Anderson, the great Swedish filmmaker in the past, and he has some laurels, but this is really just not a filmmaker of Mm -hmm. note. Um, It's written by Jane Anderson, the adaptation, and Jane Anderson is an interesting writer. She adapted Alf Kitteridge uh, for HBO a few years ago. the uh, Elizabeth Strout novel. And she was also on the staff of Mad Men uh, for a couple of seasons, Mm. including the second season in which I believe she won an Emmy. Uh, And she's been working in Hollywood for a long time. She wrote How to Make an American Quilt. She wrote uh, If These Walls Could Talk. She wrote a lot of sort of thoughtful, probably second wave feminist HBO made for TV movies. Um, I think that it's kind of like, this whole thing is very workmanlike. You know, it's not very beautiful. The, The sort of, uh, flashbacks feel like the sets were sim- just constructed. Mm-hmm. You know, they they certainly appear to be shot on a lot somewhere in yes. the middle of Central Europe. Um, and there's no real sense of place, except maybe when you're in that sort of grand dining hall uh, where the Nobel Prizes are handed out. Is that how that works? I have no idea. Okay, what is the prize that uh, the wife does not receive in, in the book The Wife? Well, she does, because the same speech, the same climactic speech of, I just won the damn something prize, except in this case, it's the Helsinki prize. Is that a fake prize? Yes, it is a fake prize. And they situate it, she situates it in the book as kind of a lesser Nobel, because the Nobel is beyond Joe's reach. I see. But the book is a lot angrier and more dismissive of... Joe, which is useful, obviously, helps you understand, helps you not judge as much. But it's in Finland and there's a lot of weird, there's a lot of Finnish culture, which I knew nothing about. So I can tell you whether it gets it right or not. But everything else is pretty much taken from the book, just in bits and pieces. Who is Joe Castleman in your mind? Who is this a loose approximation of? Well, 
I mean, there are definite Philip Roth overtones. Certainly. For sure. Certainly. And that was kind of all I could get past. And then, I mean, I don't know. Who else is, like, having his wife ghostwrite his stuff? I don't, well, I mean, yeah. set, even setting aside that, yeah. con- that conceit, the idea right. of a Jewish man from Brooklyn mm-hmm. who's sort of stymied in his early attempts mm-hmm. at greatness and then ultimately rises above that those fa- early failures right. to become one of the true literary voices of right. the second half of the— 20th century in America, right. right? That's essentially the character that we're talking about. So yes. Philip Roth right on the surface. Right, and also the Philip Saul Roth. Bellow, maybe William Styron, like who, th- that whole class of Updike, the, the, all of yeah. those novelists are in the frame here. I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Price okay. before we talk about kind of Oscar-winning performances. Yeah. And I'm interested in Joe Castleman because, you know, this is the second time that Jonathan Price has played this character. I don't know if you've seen the movie Listen Up, Philip. I have not. Which came out in 2014. It's an Alex Ross Perry novel. He plays Ike Zimmerman, who is almost literally mm-hmm. Philip Roth. Right. That I remember. There's I a great visual cue in which all of Ike Zimmerman's fake novels kind of run through the closing credits of that film. And they're done in that beautiful font style that is on the cover of all of Philip Roth's early books. Um, so Jonathan Price has already done this before. This exact character. It's narcissistic, um, eloquent, but a fool. And also a Jew from Brooklyn. Jonathan Price is the most British person alive. (laughs) Is there a person that more synonymous with a sort of haughty British actorly affect? It's very true. Why did he get cast in this role twice? I have no idea. In this case, it seems like they're trying to use the affiliation from the former film in order to not have to do, to skimp on the character development or the... (laughs) Like, I don't mean to be rude, but, but like 120,000 well, people yeah, no, maybe saw Listen Up, Philip. I mean, that's such a micro... I mean, how micro- many people saw The Wife? Well, and how many after this podcast, like, Amanda. Philip Roth. Right. You know, a lot of people, I guess. I shouldn't... Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a very uh, triangulated sort of audience for mm-hmm. the movie. I just, I'm confounded by Jonathan Price as your go-to Jewish-American author. Uh, there's literally the thousands of actors who could fill that role better. And he's not bad in this movie, per se. I mean, his character is such a caricature. That it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to a- a- accurately identify, like whether it's a good performance or not. There's a, no awards buzz for Jonathan Price, None. just for the record. Um, I think the performances in general in the movie are worth examining before we get back to to Glenn. Yeah. Uh, there's a young man in this movie that you like a lot um, that I didn't. I didn't really care for his work. You know who he is? Yes, yeah. his name is Max Irons. Yeah. And I who th- does he play? He plays their son. Who is there? His character device is to further support the legend of Joan and her wonderfulness and to make Jonathan Price's character look even more like a dick. It's really it's just like a one note plot device to be like, mom's nice and smart and dad sucks. Yeah. And he's like a moody wannabe writer who's completely. Apparently, he's quite good. According to, to Joan. Sure. Uh, Joe is a little bit more critical. Yes. Um, Max Irons, who's an extremely tall, handsome man who mm-hmm. is the son of Jeremy Irons, mm-hmm. Glenn Close's co-star in a couple of different movies. Yes. Uh, I don't think is very convincing as the son of a Brooklyn novelist. Um, <laughs> well, again, like, I don't, how did they go about casting this movie? Um, I, I don't, you know, he's fine. He's like a mopey, super handsome dude. Yeah. Great. Great. Okay, that's just in yeah. your zone. It's just like, I accept. I needed something. <laughs> there's, uh, there's a couple of other notable performances in this movie. Did you know that Annie Stark, who plays Glenn Close's daughter, or excuse me, plays young Glenn Close in the film, is Glenn Close's daughter in real I life? did not while watching. I learned that after the fact. Did, did you think she was a convincing young Glenn Close? 
I did think that the resemblance was notable, and I did spend some time wondering. She was clearly doing Glenn Close in this movie. Like, I, there was some, there was tonal consistency. I will give them that. And I was wondering how that was communicated and like how they decided. And I'm always curious in those conversations do they sit down? Did Glenn Close say, okay, I'm going for this, this, and this? Mm-hmm. And we should make sure that we're communicating this and this. Maybe she was just like impersonating her mom, which is interesting. How fraught. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Can I share with you Annie Stark's three most prominent film roles? Yes, please do. Uh, The first one is 2011. It's a film called Albert Knobs. Heard of it. Uh, The second is a 2017 comedy called Father Figures. Okay. I believe Ed Helm stars in that film and Owen Wilson. And the third is The Wife. Okay. In The Wife, she plays the younger version of Glenn Close. Yes. In Father Figures, she plays the younger version of Glenn Close. Wow. And obviously, Albert Knobs is, I believe, the last time Glenn Close was nominated for an Oscar. Yes. Uh, so, Annie Stark's range, <laughs> <laughs> sort of limited, I would say, to stuff with Glenn Close in it or yeah. being Glenn Close. Yeah. It's a tough beat for Annie Stark. Uh, there's one other significant figure in the movie. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Elizabeth McGovern as that novelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's Christian Slater who mm. plays Nathaniel Bone, one of the all-time great character names I can think of. <laughs> Uh, Nathaniel Bone is a, is a would-be biographer of Joe Castleman and somehow has, I don't know, weaseled his way into this Nobel Prize trip in, even is on the, essentially the Concord with the mm-hmm. Castleman family to, to Stockholm. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out which journalist he was based on. Okay. Because he is definitely supposed to be one of the literary world figures Mm -hmm. and who is trying to get Joe Castleman to agree to do the book with him, but is is of some renown. So who is he? I don't know. I mean, you would say Jay McInerney, but I don't think Jay McInerney would go to the trouble of going Mm. to Sweden. So Hmm, I don't know who that's more insulting towards. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure who his, his real life comp is. He is an interesting character. He also, much like Max Irons' character, is a complete plot device. He is there mm-hmm. to unearth the truth about the wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that he does that is by essentially reading Joan Castleman's short stories that she wrote in college. Yes. And then using that to clarify that that is the writing style that appears in Joe Castleman's novels. And he also reads, I guess, Joe Castleman's early work and identifies that it's not very good. Yes. Um, that's a, a little specious to me. There have been a lot of stories of sort of literary fraud over the years or literary manipulation, you know, Raymond Carver and Gordon Lish and all that stuff that we've read about if you Mm -hmm. are a New Yorker subscriber, as you and I are. Um, This one just felt very plot devicey, where he, like, Christian Slater's character corners Glenn Close in a bar and is like, I know the truth about you. Yes, I mean, that was ridiculous. I think the the basic setup of... We've got, I have your original work here and his contemporaneous work and then the first novel and I'm connecting the dots. That's more plausible than many things in this book. Fair. In in this movie, I would say. But yeah, where he just shows up and is like, let's go to a cool old Swedish bar that is definitely the worst set of the all the sets. (laughs) That just looks like they put a fake mantle in a conference room. That is like, I know that there is no bar culture in Los Angeles and people don't know how it's supposed to look, but no. It looks like they put uh, two beer steins on this table recording in the (laughs) podcast studio. It's just not very convincing. 
And then just asks her leading plot device questions. I also didn't know that Christian Slater was in this movie until about 30 minutes in when he shows up. I mean, I'm a big fan of Christian Slater. Yes. It's really nothing against Christian Slater. Just he's living exposition. I mean, his whole job is just to mm-hmm. kind of explain things to the mm-hmm. audience. Um, he later does so to Max Irons' his character, which really kind of sets the plot in motion for this yes. movie. Um, let me ask you one other thing about sort of the storytelling here. Mm-hmm. So later in the film, when Christian Slater's character does uh, essentially feed the wife and Joe Castleman's uh, son weed and beer and then shares with him his revelations about Mm -hmm. his parents. Mm -hmm. And that character has a complete meltdown. Yes. Um, Why was the kid so bent out of shape about that? Like, why was he sort of screaming and thrashing about? Well, that's a great question. I mean... Is he unwell? Is that what we're supposed to believe? Is he sort of battling depression or something? I mean, that was quite a dramatic... Yes. Performance. I think in the context of the movie, he is just supposed to be expressing some of the anger and betrayal. You know, he it's very clear that he has been raised his whole life to lionize his father and look up to his father, and he's desperate for his father's approval, and his father's a real dick, and it's been very difficult for him. And so he is react. I think he's reacting as much to the lie that's presented to him how it's made him feel and also what it's, you know, if he can do that to his mother, what has he done to his son, et cetera. I guess. I don't know. Okay. That's fine. I, I, you it's know. not like, that's my best surface reading of the movie. In the book, it's the children are quite different. Oh. And in the book, this this the son isn't there, um, but the son is more emotionally disturbed. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you could be picking up on something. I don't think that's anywhere in the movie. Okay. So maybe maybe they were trying to... Well, I, I just thought that that scene in particular was yeah. like sort of ridiculously operatic yeah. and bad. Yeah. Um, any other performances or appearances or things in this movie that are worth noting, aside from Glenn, who we, we will speak about in a minute? No, long silence is a bad I was sign. just like honestly trying to think what else happens in the movie. I really felt that the young Joe Castleman... Was it zero? I mean, and I think I think he's supposed to be a little bit, but it's tough because there's really no chemistry between the two of them. So do you know who plays that person? No. This is a fun fact for our uh, Binge Mode crossover listeners. He's played by an actor named uh, Harry Lloyd. Uh, Game of Thrones fans will know him as Viserys Targaryen. Oh, that guy. The guy with the blonde wig. Who okay. was, was killed by Cal okay. Drogo, okay. who is, of course, the mother of dragons' his brother. Oh, right. And quite evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I picture him with that, that oh, long mane. Yeah, that's right. I don't mean that the actor was terrible. I just, it didn't match up. Again, a British guy playing a, a, yeah. a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Like, what are we just. And he's supposed to be standing in front of the room of women at Smith and just being like this commanding figure that they're all drawn to. And that was just not happening for me personally. He's a dweeb. Yeah. Yeah. So that's confusing because I think you at least need him to be charismatic in order to connect it to the present day scenes. I completely agree. Okay. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Glenn Close. Okay. I just want to read you the first six or seven films that Glenn Close made in her film career. Okay. Okay. She was a stage actress before she started acting mm-hmm. um, in cinema. And this, she came out with The World According to Garp. Mm-hmm. Her next film is The Big Chill. Mm-hmm. After that is The Natural. Mm-hmm. Then it's Greystroke, The Legend of Tarzan. Her voice is uncredited. And then Jagged Edge, which is a wonderful thriller with Jeff Bridges. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. 
and then Fatal Attraction, and then Dangerous Liaisons. And that's basically the first decade of Glenn Close as an actress. That's kind of as good as you can do. Agree. Complex characters, interesting films that hold up. I would recommend almost all of those movies Mm -hmm. so you could watch them right now, which is, you know, not true, sidebar, of virtually every Oscar movie ever made. I've been kind of like plowing through Oscar movies of the past, and I've spent a lot of time on movies from the 80s this week. Yo, the Oscar winners from the 80s are not good. Maybe that's a separate podcast, but I just okay. need to I need to cite that. That's but if fine. you if you watch The World According to Garp now, or The Natural, or Jagged Edge, even, great movies. Um, you know, she was nominated for The World According to Garp, The Big Chill, and The Natural, all in the Best Supporting Actress category. And she's nominated for Best Actress in Fatal Attraction and Dangerous Liaisons. And then about 22, 23 years go by, and then we get Albert Nobbs, and she's nominated. And a lot of people thought Albert Nobbs was gonna get her that Oscar that she so richly deserved. Right. And then Meryl Streep came through, the like the Kool Aid Man with the Jeez. Iron Lady. What? That's what it is. Grace. That's of the a year. that's a tough beat. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to be honest. I've never seen Albert Nobbs. I, nor have I. Okay. Um, and I have just respect to Meryl, but we all know that that wasn't the one. No, for Meryl. that's terrible. Meryl knows that. Okay. Uh, and now number seven is the wife. Yeah. In terms of performance. Yeah. Um, you know she's she's won other awards. She's got a couple of Golden Globes. She won a Golden Globe for The Lion in Winter. She won a Golden Globe for Damages, which I thought was a great television show. I don't know if you watched that. Early Days of Rose Byrne. Yeah, no, I, everyone was like, oh my God, Damages. Because she she would win. She won at the Golden Globes and everyone was like, wow, that's so special. And I was like, I'm never going to watch that, but that's great. That was also in the heady days of a, t- a movie actress starring in a TV show. Yeah. And that's seeming like an exciting new thing. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the real life uh, male counterpart to Glenn Close is William Hurt, mm. who similarly was nominated for Best Actor through sort of the five right. of the first seven films he appeared in and then kind of vanished for 25 years and then was in Damages. And I believe he won an Emmy for Damages and then also was nominated late later in his career for David Cronenberg's The History of Violence. So, you know, you have these kind of archetypes of 80s stars who cycle out and then cycle back in as they enter their sort of wife phase where they can play a, <laughs> a, an overlooked older person. Um, just broadly, do you think that this is a great Glenn Close performance? Uh, <laughs> so many uh, pregnant pauses. Well, so the problem is that there are like three different performances in this. And I think the most interesting to me part of the performance is the reserved reaction-based kind of more wifey of the Glenn Close performances. And it's that's not a typically Glenn Closey performance. And that's what I think is interesting about it and also what stands out to me and t- kind of like, oh, I didn't know that you could do this and you're really living in it and it is making sense in the context of the movie. When she is just freaking yelling at Jonathan Price or when she's doing like the dramatic stare at the camera, which is something that they use a lot and I am not a fan of as an acting style, that's more typically Glenn Close as... I mean, she's got a lot of range, but I think of her really just like as an actress, playing big, being arch, being in control, being, I don't know. It's, that is the more Glenn Closey aspect of it to me. And I don't like it as much. I don't know. So. Yeah, it's it's not true to her character. I mean, maybe yeah. that's why she's the right person for a role yeah. like this. She has this kind of feline nobility mm-hmm. in, in like the way that she looks and the way that she carries herself that at any moment could turn into like. A hairball freak out, you know. That's yes. that's kind of what she does. She kind of she can blow her top really effectively. Yeah. If you want to see Glenn Close doing one of the great movie acting performances, like Rent Dangerous Liaisons, that's right. 
that's her doing her thing. That kind of happens a little bit in the back half of this movie where you see her kind of unraveling and you you sense this operatic flair for the mm-hmm. moment and she's sort of grasping and she's the most violent and charismatic person in the room. Right. Um, it's really weird. I mean, you know, you have noted that this wouldn't be the first time if she wins this award and she is the presumptive favorite, we should say, RIP to Lady Gaga's campaign, I think, um, that a woman with a great long career wins Best Actress for a role like this, which is like, okay, it's totally fine. I don't know. What are some other ones where this happened? In recent memory, Julianne Moore for Still Alice. Kate Winslet for The Reader. Woof. Nicole Kidman for The Hours. Not for me. Um, yeah, that one's okay. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's my favorite Nicole Kidman performance, but I'm, it doesn't offend me that that's the winner. The, the Kate Winslet one in particular, I love Kate Winslet. I, I would watch Kate Winslet in anything except for Sense and Sensibility, which I haven't seen. Um, much she's, to your chagrin. She's transcendent in that. I, uh, it's very good. But yeah, it is one of those things where, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess Jessica Lang winning for Blue Sky. There have been some examples of this. Uh, this is just, it's, it's, a, it's consistently a weird category because they often go either for ingenue mm-hmm. or accomplished woman who has been sort of right. waiting her turn to get this award. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that part of the reason it's a weird category with performances that you like the actress, you're iffy on the, on the performance is because there aren't as many good roles for women as there are for men. No, you know, it's, it's true. It, because I was trying to think of actors who win late in life and you're really excited to see them. And Christopher Plummer was the first person who popped into my mind. But he's wonderful mm-hmm. in Beginners. And that's really, you understand why that movie and performance wins it for him. And these are kind of like, well, they found a script. They managed to get it on the screen and we really like them. So we might as well go with it. I don't, I'm not often as offended if it's in a best supporting category. If it's in a best supporting character category and a big star takes a smaller role, I don't know, James Coburn in Affliction or Christopher Plummer, as you noted, yeah. that kind of work, you know, essentially lifts the movie up in a way. Yeah. When the movie is built around someone who's been better so many times, yeah. you know, that's the story of like Dustin Hoffman winning for Rain Man and Al Pacino winning for Scent of a Woman. It's like those guys are much better in a, in literally dozen other movies, maybe 25 other movies. And so that being their win feels weird. I think ultimately if Glenn Close does win, she certainly deserves to have an Oscar, whatever deserves to have an Oscar means. It's unfortunate that it would be for this kind of limp piece yeah. of newspaper. You know, it happens. It it's happens. like It even happened last year with Gary Oldman. I was thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Great example. Um, and it's, what are you going to do, I guess? But I agree that this doesn't feel... This this isn't really representative of her career and her. I know she's been playing into the big theme of being overlooked or whatever, but like not like this. She's not hiding in the shadows. Yeah, I mean, this is just not. It, it's not good for the Oscars in the way that this won't be an exciting moment. Even if she gives a great speech, it won't be like a. It, there's no chance for it to be a wow moment. I think what you want is, you probably want like Jennifer Lawrence, which I, I was not a big fan of that moment but when she won there was a kind of kinetic energy in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, her almost falling up the staircase yeah. and her speech, which was so wide-eyed. Um, or you want, I, I don't know, maybe Marion Cotillard winning for like La Vie en say, Rose. I mean, that's the best, you know, that best was, one. That was a shocking win. It is true that there are angels in the city yes. tonight. I mean, it's great. Incredible speech. Yeah. She. It was kind of her emergence as a movie star right. in America. Um, I don't know. This is. It's just kind of a bummer. And I don't want to end the segment by just being like, well, the wife sucks. Because it doesn't suck. It's okay. I mean, it just, it fueled an entire podcast. It's it's it really interesting. And I do recommend the Meg Wolitzer novel. And I thought it had particularly resonant thoughts about 
um, the balance of marriage and how it is, thankfully, really thankfully, because I'm married, changed since the 50s and 60s. But, you know, the sacrifices that any two people make in a long term um, and compromises and regrets that two people have after 50 years, I suppose. And I think this idea that we receive women differently in every sphere, but specifically the creative sphere, is insightful and certainly for me, angry-making at times and so relevant. We, You know, we talked about this last week. There are no female directors nominated. They just don't let women make films. And so much of that is because, oh, okay, well, like, dudes don't, dudes don't want to go see it. And that's like, I don't know if that's true, but sometimes it feels like it is. So it, it explores those ideas in an interesting way. And I think that it's worth talking and thinking about. I don't think the movie lives up to the ideas. Yeah, you said insightful and angry-making at times, which is how I would probably describe my experience with this movie. Yeah. Um, let's let's just go straight forward to our next segment. Okay. Let, let's, let's go to Stock Up, Stock Down. If it goes bust, you can make 10 to 1, even 20 to 1 return, and it's already slowly going bust. Uh, a couple of things happened this weekend that are relevant to the Oscar race. I'd like to talk about them, Amanda. Yeah. They have nothing to do with Glenn Close. The first thing is that on Friday, the Ace Eddie Awards occurred. This is the Editing Guild and their awards. Uh, I spoke to Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Vassarelli, the directors behind Free Solo, and they were on their way after we spoke last Friday to this awards. Mm -hmm. Turns out that they won. That's great. Uh, That was a good winner. A bad winner Mm -hmm. was the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Somehow, for dramatic film, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a quite poorly edited movie, won at the Ace Eddie Awards. And... You know, I've heard a couple of cases for it. I wanted to talk through it a little bit with Mm -hmm. you as I try to figure out what happened here. Obviously, people are well aware now of the story of Brian Singer and his sort of, uh, uh, I guess, unpredictable work life in that he sort of wouldn't appear on set some days and then ultimately was fired from this film. It sounds like about 65 to 75% the way through shooting. Dexter Fletcher came in and finished the movie. So I think what you have here is you have probably a lot of footage that doesn't always cut together well. And so the movie is edited in such a way that, as someone pointed out on Twitter, in that very famous scene in which the band meets their manager for the first time, is sort of like visually incoherent. Yes. Uh, and can I just say, the general public doesn't pay a lot of editing is not like acting or even the general sense of directing where the general public has like a great handle on the uh, technical skills involved. And so when you're getting roasted on Twitter for editing, it's you know things are bad. If you if you notice it, yes. the editor did something wrong. Yes. Um, there, there are exceptions to this. Hank Corwin, who was nominated for Vice and also edited The Big Short, has a very kinetic, hard-cutting, flashy style of editing that has changed the way Adam McKay makes movies. That's a rare exception. When you're watching a straight-ahead studio biopic like Bohemian Rhapsody, and you can notice that like somebody's head is to the left of the frame in one shot and to the right of the frame in another, or that you can hear a voice, but you, that person isn't in the room, or there, there's all these kinds of very small dropout failures in Bohemian Rhapsody. And people are always asking us, like, why do you hate this movie so much? It makes so many people happy. It's just really badly made. And... A lot of the performances are wooden, and the way that it's shot is very blah, and it obviously elides this entire history of Freddie Mercury's life, and it is dishonest about the trajectory of Queen's career. So it's just a messy and kind of bad movie. Now, the reason that people have been citing for its win is that this is not the editor's fault that this movie was shot this way or written this way or conceived this way. The editor gets footage and has to sit down and compile it in a way to make an exciting or interesting film. And Bohemian Rhapsody is a big hit. 
And somehow the person who edited the film managed to pull this off. So it's sort of like a... So it's the award for saving the film. Yes, yes. Now, I would argue that the award for saving the film is $850 million, which is how much money it made. Uh, nevertheless, the ASID Awards handed this down to Bohemian Rhapsody. Do I think that this means it's going to be a Best Picture contender even more so? Not really. But if you have a guild behind you, that's significant. And that just means you might get more votes. Maybe? I I guess. I don't know. I don't really know what's going to happen at this point. It does seem like this is more of a participation trophy mm-hmm. than a vote of excellence. Mm-hmm. And maybe the Guild Award goes to the, oh, it's our friends. And maybe when you're voting for Best Picture, you're voting for something different. I'm not really sure. Maybe that's wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's also notable that Rami Malek sort of kind of spoke on the Brian Singer allegations and sort of kind of denounced them this week. I thought that was kind of a nothing story. Uh, it was definitely a nothing statement. Yeah, it was definitely a nothing statement. It's kind of a word salad. Who who can know the mind of God, as Ethan Hawke once said in a film, and who can know the mind of Rami Malek and what he knew or did not know about Brian Singer before they started making this film? I think that there is probably an entire world of of legal complication around mm-hmm. his ability to talk about this in any meaningful way. That's true. And I think people kind of underestimate that in a time when people want to have evil denounced out loud all day on Twitter. And, you know, Rami Malek is a movie star who's at the center of a huge movie, and he has a contract. And I'm sure in that contract, there's all kinds of weird language that allows you to say or not say certain things. Now, as a famous person, he has a unique amount of leverage, but I'm not sure that Rami Malek coming forward and decrying Brian Singer's participation in this movie would help or hurt anything. No, it certainly wouldn't change anything. The flip side to this is that... All of these people have had a lot of time to prepare for this, and you kind of got to know that part of the game in being a prominent person in 2019, and specifically someone who is campaigning regularly for an Oscar, is that you will be criticized. This is just, there are complications, and you got to learn how to talk about it. And you don't have to denounce anyone. You don't have to, like, solve all of the problems, but you are an actor, Practice two sentences. And, I, you know, I think that goes for Rami Malek. I think that goes for Peter Farrelly. I think there are a lot of people who have not uh, reconciled themselves to the public nature of this. And not even, no one's asking them to solve problems. Well, maybe Peter Farrelly. But no one is asking them to be perfect. But it's not that hard to have a soundbite. And I'm kind of fascinated by the number of people who have not figured that out. This is a good transition to the DGAs. Yeah. Peter Farrelly. Uh, you know, earlier in the day before the DGA Awards happen, there is uh, always a symposium in which all of the Best Director nominees have a kind of roundtable conversation in front of an audience. This year's was particularly amusing. I would encourage people to check out Twitter to see some of the video from that conversation. Spike Lee, who has really been owning this moment in many ways and will appear on Bill Simmons' podcast later this week, uh, was in grand form. Telling a lot of stories, getting up, running around, being his most spike, his most exuberant, his most ebullient. I thought Bradley Cooper acquitted himself pretty well. Pretty well. Yeah. The reviews seem to be, he seems pretty chill. And it's it's funny because he's really been getting the football pulled out from him on on every every last kick this, very this month, this yeah. year. Uh, I, it's, I don't know. This kind of feels like he's being hazed into awards contention. I really don't understand it. I think someone said the reason... I think this was on Mark Harris's Twitter. Like, the reason that Bradley Cooper has been erased from the Oscar conversation is just because he looks like someone who already has an Oscar. Mm. Um, it's just kind of like, 
And he did look extremely confident and comfortable up there and obviously still looks like a movie star, especially when he's not doing Jackson Maine hair. And he's Bradley Cooper. So maybe we're like, whatever. People are like, whatever. He's he's going to be successful for the rest of his life. We don't need to vote for him, I, I guess. I think that's fair. I have completely bought into the um, Heaven Can Wait Reds formulation where Warren Beatty was nominated for many Oscars for Heaven Can Wait and won virtually mm-hmm. none in 1978, I think. And then a few years later, makes this grand, incredible historical drama, Reds. And that's where he is right. recognized as the great genius that he is. Um, it, it feels like there's a little bit of that going on with Bradley Cooper right now. I mean, Cooper is next working on a Leonard Bernstein biopic that also feels quite Oscar-y. Yes. Would it surprise you if he was back here in a couple of years doing this whole show again and then maybe being awarded? It wouldn't shock me. I think also, especially in the mm-hmm. like the actual big director's races, it, he is up against Cuaron, yes. uh, who directed Roma, which is just a triumph. Yes. So some of that is just like tough luck. Yes. And I think part of this is that he's just been overlooked in every category. Like he didn't really ever get off the ground in Best Actor, which I think that performance is amazing and best picture it's just an immediate also ran so the director aspect of it all is like well there was someone better that happens from time to time it's true uh Quaron did in fact win later on Saturday night the award uh which you know confirms to me that he's going to win best director at the Oscars I don't that's probably one of the only races I feel completely secure about if he doesn't win I'll be quite surprised yes Uh, we talked about this quite a bit last week um you know, two in, in five years is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a ton of precedent for that. Roma's great. I don't, <laughs> how many more times can we? Can I talk about how, how Roma's good? Should we, should we do it again? No. Probably a few more weeks. Yeah, we're probably going to have to. <laughs> uh, no, it's a wonderful movie. A couple of other notable things. As we said, Bradley Cooper went home empty-handed on Saturday night because he also did not win the Best First Feature Award, which went to Bo Burnham for 8th grade. You know, I love 8th grade. I think it's a wonderful movie. This felt cruel to Bradley Cooper. Uh, It's possible that people just don't like Bradley Cooper. I think we have to consider that possibility. Maybe. I don't know. Do directors get kind of twitchy when an actor shows up and is like, look what I can do? Maybe that's it? Yes and no. I mean, this wasn't a problem for Kevin Costner, right? You know, when he made Dances with Wolves. Like, it's happened plenty of times before. I don't know. Yeah. Other notable things. Tim Wardle, who made Three Identical Strangers, won Best Documentary Directing which is notable because he's not nominated for an Oscar. His film is not there in Best Doc, which is pretty weird. Uh, I don't don't, don't know how these things work. Also, I just wanted to note, Spike Jones won a DGA award for Best Commercial, that great Apple HomePod commercial Mm -hmm. that he made. And uh, it's been uh, five and a half years since Spike Jones made a movie. Spike Jones needs to make a movie immediately. Um, That'd be great. I don't know why he's not making a movie. I think I, he's just at Speranza a lot. So is that true? <laughs> yeah, so local LA yeah, East yeah, Side just, Eatery. Like, taking a bunch of meetings, okay. like double booking. Uh, yeah. I love Speranza and I love Spike Jones. I wish he would come back and <laughs> make a damn movie. Um, you know, I think Bohemian Rhapsody's stock is up, and Alfonso Cuarón's stock is up. I would agree with both of those. Uh, I. What a time. We got, it's, we got to get the voting going. This is the part of the season where it's just everyone's tearing their, is tearing their hair. I know. Out. We're still a full week away. <sighs> Let's go to our next segment. It's called The Big Race. Well, Mama, look at me now. I'm a star. Let's talk about supporting actor. I don't know if there's a ton to talk about here, but I wanted to talk about Mahershala Ali a little bit. Okay. And Mahershala Ali, we had, have talked for weeks and weeks about becoming a major star in light of Green Book and True Detective Season 3. Now, I think True Detective Season 3 is fine. 
That is definitively the adjective I would use to describe it. I'm all caught up. I've seen five episodes. Can I just, on the record, so have I. Okay. Isn't that, which is a tri- which I, is I an can't amazing believe that. historic feat. I am up to date on True Detective. It is definitely not bad. It is definitely not great. And it's, I mean, it, they it's just not need, a phenomenon. Stuff needs to happen. It's very, it's very slow. And I'm not opposed to a slow story. I, I am. don't have a lot of time, free time in my life. And, I agree. And television is not my my metier these days. So eight hours of True Detective or eight and a half hours or whatever they're ultimately going to do uh, is just testing my patience a little bit. And I, while I think Mahershala is very good in this in this show, I don't think it's doing for him what I thought it was going to do, which is solidify. And obviously there's this world of complication around Green Book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his role in this has been complicated. I think people have been very eager to say, this isn't on Mahershala Ali. This, none of this controversy is his fault. And I don't think anything is sort of anybody's quote-unquote fault except for what Nick Valalonga tweeted and what Peter Farrelly has said from time to time. But he is still in this movie. <laughs> so if you have a problem with this movie, I think rewarding his performance seems like a strange thing to do. Uh, I wonder if people will just support him because they just like him. I don't think the, the sort of that wellspring of support is necessarily exactly where it was going to be. And so if that's not the case, do you think we might have kind of a Mark Rylance or Christoph Waltz situation where somebody kind of comes out of nowhere and wins in this category. I mean, this is definitely the category, historically, like the supporting roles where that happens. And you have two people in Sam Elliott and Richard Grant who are the classic, ah, love is work. It's so important. Let's, let's, it would be so great to reward it, whatever. Which, as you noted, in the supporting actor category, I'm not as concerned about as especially since Mahershala won two years ago. So it seems possible. I guess there's a little question of vote splitting Mm -hmm. because if you're not voting for Mahershala, then you can pick either of those guys and maybe they cancel each other out. And then Adam Driver rises. And then Adam Driver. I mean, it would be the most this year thing if Adam Driver is the only winner for Black Klansman. Yeah. And like, let's not do that, please. If you vote, just make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, Adam Driver is one of the greatest actors of his generation and deserves many Oscars. But like, let's let's think about the optics just this much. Not likely to happen could happen. Right. Five percent chance. Yeah. Three percent. Um, I guess it could happen. I, I will say that uh, Richard E. Grant has been just on a charm tour like nobody's business. Please, please follow him on Twitter. He recently just was like outside Barbara Streisand's house in Malibu taking pic- selfies. Or I, I'm sorry, he asked his wife to take the pictures. He at first asked the security guard whether it would be okay. And the security guard was like, it's a public road, but thank you for asking. Great, great stuff. And that does matter, especially in these categories. So. It could happen. I don't want to break your heart, but I don't think Sam Elliott's going to happen just because a star is born is freaking cursed. And that makes me sad to say, too. There's no better moment in movies in 2018 than Sam Elliott pulling out of that driveway. That's I mean, There's literally not a better moment. There is, and it's the same movie, and it's when she sings Shallow. No, but it's that's Sam okay. Elliott pulling out of the driveway, that's good. a tear in his eye, a song in his heart, Okay. thinking about his younger brother who stole his voice. Yeah. It's nice that men have things to make them feel. <laughs> I'm happy for all of you. Uh, 
You know, I who cares? I don't care if Sam Elliott wins or not. I, I think Mahershala winning would be weird. I think it's like borderline unnecessary. And it has nothing to do with the movie. It's just like, Mahershala Ali just won. Like, it, No, I agree. Just historically, yeah. uh, for, we always complain about how things kind of never happen on time for the right people. Mahershala Ali's win for Moonlight is one of the rare cases where the absolute right person won. I watched Moonlight uh, a few months ago before I talked to Barry Jenkins, and I was just blown away by how good he is in that movie. Um, there was, was one notable, interesting uh, thing we learned, I think, from that DGA symposium, which is that Peter Farrelly asks actors if they're open to line readings from the director. Yes. Which is, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, it means when you're on the set making a movie, the director will sometimes read the line to an actor to clarify how he or she wants it to be said in the film. The only person who declined to have line readings from Peter Farrelly in Green Book is Mahershala Ali. Because Mahershala Ali is a very considerate, thoughtful actor. If you've ever read interviews with him talking about his approach to movies, you know that he is a deep thinker about this stuff. And I love that he is the he is, had the mm-hmm. clearly has the most agency in this whole fiasco. Yeah. But even still, like we we nailed it. We got the Mahershala Ali moment going. Sam Rockwell, he won last year. I don't know who's someone's missing from this category that should have won. Who's missing? I don't even know. Henry Cavill for Fallout. Oh boy. Okay. Uh, Amanda, let's let's look ahead. Okay. We're almost done here. The BAFTAs are on February 10th. I saw some conversation over the weekend that the BAFTAs could be a bigger bellwether than we've had in recent past. Tell me why. Well, I think it's because the BAFTAs represents a huge part of the voting body. So there are quite a few British people that vote for the Oscars. And if we just go down the list of the Guild Awards, essentially we have, well, the Guild Awards and the major other awards. So you've got Green Book wins the Golden Globe. Mm-hmm. You've got, I believe, Roma won the Critics' Choice Award. Yes. You've got Black Panther wins the SAG Award. Mm-hmm. You've got Bohemian Rhapsody wins the Editing Award. Mm-hmm. And you've got Green Book wins the Producers Guild Award. Mm-hmm. That's really messy. And those groups don't represent a huge amount of voters, with the exception of the SAG Awards. And I don't think anybody thinks Black Panther is going to win. So maybe the BAFTAs is the most clear indicator of where Best Picture is going. I have also seen weirdly, a lot of noise about Rachel Weisz winning in Best Supporting Actress yes. at the BAFTAs. Yes, I have too. Which would be very interesting. What's up? That's a wrinkle that I would welcome. Uh, and then voting opens on uh, February 12th for the Oscars. So immediately after the BAFTAs end, essentially people get their ballots and they have to vote. And, you know, recency bias is what it is. People, I don't know, will you be watching the BAFTAs on, on BBC America? Probably not because it's on at like 9 a.m. here. Sure, but what else are you doing? Uh, I don't know. Probably my husband's watching golf. Good and it's point. your fault. Okay. So <laughs> That is my fault. Uh, and then the Writers Guild of America Awards happen on February 17th. Mm-hmm. I think that that will be pretty straightforward. There are several people that are not nominated for various oh, eligibility right. reasons right. as well, right? So it's not a total comparison to the Oscars. Maybe we'll do a screenplay showdown yeah. next week on the show in the big race. Uh, And then the voting closes on February 19th. And then February 24th, we have the Academy Awards. So we're getting close. Mm -hmm. I would say that this has been a much more interesting and messy season than I expected in August when we first heard about the movie The Wife. Agree. Uh, Though, of course, the only thing that we're sure about now, Glenn Close is The Wife. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I don't know. You know, stay tuned on this show. Uh, we have a conversation coming up with Barry Alexander Brown. Um, he is the editor of Black Klansman. We talked a little bit about sort of the, the gifts and the skills and the failures of editing in movies. And I'll be talking to a nominee every week for the next four weeks. And then we'll be back next week on the Oscar show, Amanda, to talk about, uh, I guess, British people giving out awards. 
I do like British people. I do too. Yeah. See you then. Delighted to be joined by Oscar nominee Barry Alexander Brown. Barry, thank you for being here. Um, it's my pleasure. Barry, uh, so you're nominated for Black Klansman, but this is far from your first film with Spike Lee. Oh, far. far you have from worked my on virtually film. every Spike Lee movie. Not no, quite, I not know. Quite that's every. not true. That's not true. What, is it 1920? I was trying to count it correctly. I think I was, you know, I don't really know. Uh, somebody the other day told me it was 20. But if you count everything that we've done together, over all these decades, it comes out to be over a hundred projects. Oh, that's incredible! You know, you know, I mean, maybe far over a hundred. I mean, commercials, music videos, um, even little things that uh, we did early on for MTV. These little one-minute things. Yeah. So you were involved are, in all of those things over the years. Yeah, a lot of them. A Interesting. Lot of them. And has your role changed? Because I feel like in the very early stages, in the sort of she's got to have it era. Maybe your your role wasn't as clearly defined as it would be, say, on Black Klansman. I don't think it's clearly defined even. <laughs> well, let's help, help understand frankly, it. What I is don't your think role? it is clearly defined. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, um, Spike and I, we came up together, right? And also, Spike doesn't look at me as just an editor because he knows I can do a lot of things. I mean, we wrote a, a, a pilot together for CBS 20 years ago. Uh, so I write. And he also knows that I'm a, I'm a filmmaker on my own. This is not your yeah. first Oscar nomination? No, I was nominated as a producer and director of a documentary, uh, my first film. And so Spike knows, you know what? I can handle a lot of stuff off here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and just like I came in to do uh, his uh, Netflix series, two episodes on She's Gotta Have It. And it hit him pretty quickly. Oh, you know what? Barry can do the ADR because I've done a lot of ADR mm-hmm. directing over the years for a lot of movies. And so the actors for the series were showing up for ADR and I was directing them. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> because they said, you know, one of them said, man, Spike must really trust you if you're here so instead is, of him. Is that incredibly uncommon if you have in sort of post-production when you're recording ADR, the director is usually there yeah, instructing yeah, yeah, the actors? Yeah. But Spike's got me. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, sometimes Spike is in the ADR session. But the guy is, he's so busy. He's busier than anybody I know. You know, if he can hand it off to somebody he trusts and he trusts me, you know, there it is. Tell me how you built that trust. When did you guys meet? How did you form the relationship you have? We met in the summer of 1981 in Atlanta, Georgia, through mutual friends. And then we were both back in New York in the fall. And I had helped start first run features film distribution company for independent American filmmakers, American films. And I was the president of the company. And so we needed somebody to check prints and clean them and get them ready to ship back out. And our office was very close to NYU where Spike was going. And he was the only film student I knew. I thought, this is a perfect part-time job for a film student. I asked him if he wanted to do it. He said, yeah. So Spike was making... This was the early 80s. He was making $100 a week, and I was making $200 a week. Amazing. <laughs> As a president. How did you learn that he was going to become such a, maybe not an important filmmaker, but a filmmaker in his own right? You know, we got to know each other over the next few years. I would say, you know, it took us a while to be, be really friends. But if you look from 81 to 83, you know, he was working part-time. We started talking about movies. We started talking about entertainment. 
we both love Broadway musicals, oh. especially the old Broadway musicals. Mm -hmm. We both love them. At those days, if you talk to any of the other independent filmmakers in New York, and you would say, yeah, I love Oklahoma. They would go, what? What's the matter with you? <laughs> but you talk to Spike, he'd go, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, West Side Story and on and on and on, right? And there was something about just entertainment that we both admired and both felt like, man, Donald O'Connor in doing Make Him Laugh. If you can't appreciate that, I think get get out of the business what was because because and you know but I could talk to Spike about that mm -hmm. in those days you know and so there was there was certainly politics that were very similar and certain certain things about just cinema in general that that was very similar for both of us and then there's this appreciation for just entertainment that uh, you know just drew us together. I'm interested in your career at that time because as you said you had already been nominated for the War Home. Uh, for uh, best documentary, home, yeah. and you know, so you were already an established documentary. I was not established. That was not true. What does that mean? That was not true. I, you know, we we made this film in Madison, Wisconsin. It was about Madison in the in the sixties. Now this was over ten years later, and that's that film was where I learned to make movies. You know, it was sort of my college. It was sort of my film school. Spike went to NYU, but I made the War at Home. And so the film came out, and it took off like a rocket, like a rocket, you know? I mean, when we were making the movie, people were saying, good friends were saying to me, what makes you think you're a filmmaker? Well, because you saw so many movies, you've read so many books. This, you should stop. This is ridiculous what you're doing. And so then the film came out, did very well, <laughs> you know, and we got nominated for an Oscar. And I was not prepared for it. I was not prepared. I was not. I was very young, and I kind of emotionally crashed. I felt like a fraud. Um, I felt like a fraud. Is that because you didn't necessarily know what film to make next or I how to proceed? I definitely didn't. I definitely didn't because, you know, I wasn't coming up to the business. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, nobody would hire me, so I hired myself to make a movie. So I was definitely not established, and I didn't know what to do with it when it happened. And I didn't even know emotionally how to take it in. It was too big. It was just too big. And I kind of emotionally crashed for a while. And I didn't do anything for a couple of years. Uh, I put myself into first-run features, and, and which was not the best idea. I'm not a businessman, you know, but it was a safe place to be. For a while. Did you sense when you were making the documentary that you had a knack for editing, that that was something that was one of your skill sets? I didn't sets? think so. I really? didn't think so. No. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't even take an, 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 an editor's credit on my first film, even though I cut uh, most of it. Because uh, I thought, well, no, this is, I'm not an editor. And I didn't even think I was an editor for a very long time. Um, and I was then... In the early part of the 80s, I was doing smaller documentaries, you know, on almost no money and cutting them because I couldn't afford an editor. And then it was my friends like Mira Nair and Spike Lee who said, you know, I want you to cut from me. And I thought, really? You know, especially when Spike, you know, she's got to have it did so well. And I'd cut one scene in that movie and because he cut the rest of the movie. And then when he did uh, School Days, he said, I want you to cut it. And I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, you really have a budget. You can really hire an editor. And, you know, I'm, uh, I really did feel 
all the way through school days. And then I did Salam Bombay with, with Mira, and that also got a foreign language nomination. And, and then Do the Right Thing with Spike. And then Madonna had me do Truth or Dare. Yeah, that's amazing. I and, wanted to ask you about that. And then, and then we, you know, it wasn't until I did Malcolm X that I thought, you know, I might be a film editor. <laughs> I might be an editor. But that's amazing because you were a part of so many incredibly important and impactful films. Yeah. And so even in even in the Do the Right Thing, which is obviously now kind of a world historic American film. Yeah. At the time you were like, I don't know if this is where my life and career is going to go. Definitely not. Definitely not. What did you think it also could be? Were you like, I'm also now I'm gonna be a school teacher or were you Oh no, no. I always was writing. I even worked for the Boston Globe for a while. Mm. You know, and what did you um, write about? Uh, well, recently, uh, in the, I'm actually in the midst of doing a fantasy trilogy. I've gotten half of it written, and uh, I, I, I've written screenplays before. I don't think I'll ever write another screenplay. Um, but And I've written the screenplay for the film I'm about to direct. And Spike and I, as I mentioned before, we, 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 we work together. So I always figured that I'd either go back to writing or writing and directing, um, but editing had was such a joy for me. And it's always been a joy. Um, it's fun for me to do. I, I don't know enough about your craft, so help me understand what you do. How much of what you do is intellectual and strategic and philosophical, and how much of it is mechanical? Okay, I was once on a panel with Thelma Schumacher and Sam Martin Pollock. Martin Scorsese's great yeah. editor. Yeah, right. And and Sam Pollard, who's mm. the other editor for Spike. Yes. And they were both talking about how they approach a movie, you know? And it was like, wow, really? You do all this work? You see other movies, you think about what kind of film this is going to be and, and how it's supposed to move. And not me. Not me. I was shocked. So what do you do? I am just, I'm instinctive, man. I'm instinctive. The best way I can describe what I do is I fall through a cut. I fall through it. You know, uh, I don't uh, think a lot about about it until I'm really looking at the footage. And I don't think a lot about it until I'm really sitting there and cutting. And then it just starts to speak to me. It just speaks to me. That's really interesting. Uh, tell me specifically about working on Black Klansman. Now, okay, are sure. you getting involved? Are you on the set when, when they're shooting? No. I mean, I always show up at the set, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but even like in Black Klansman, um, you know, there was a point where uh, we came up with an idea in the midst of the shoot to have the, the Klan listen to David Duke tapes whenever they're in a car. Mm -hmm. Sort of this constant indoctrination. Right, and Spike said to me, "Okay, write that up." So I listened to a bunch of David Duke stuff, and you know, wrote out something for Topher Grace to do, and then I went on on the set, really just to hand out the pages and make sure that everybody had them, so that when Topher had a moment that they could do it, then the sound guy knew, the uh, you know, first AD knew, that everybody was, uh, the producers knew that this was something that had to happen, sort of on the fly at some point. Interesting. So, I mean, I assume you're coming in at the script stage when Spike is starting a movie, right? Are you reading? Well, the he shows me the script. Yeah. Sometimes, but not always. Or not always. Sometimes he just calls me up and says, "I'm shooting in three months, uh, and you're cutting." <laughs> hey, man, I love Spike. He says, "Jump!" I say, "How high?" Are you looking at dailies after the day shooting? 
Well, you'd like to as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it used to be when we were doing Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, he got game, Summer of Sam. There was dailies almost every night after the shoot, which were great, and they were projected. Nowadays, you know, people look at, at dailies in any old way that they get them. You know, it's a digital file. The, sometimes people are watching them on their phone. Sometimes people are watching them on their computer, their laptop, their iPad. And so, you know, there isn't that thing about projecting dailies anymore. So oftentimes with Spike and I these days, like on Black Landsman, it would be on a Saturday. We'd come in and use Saturday to to shoot. I mean, not to shoot, but to screen the dailies because he's shooting out of town. How much of these are things evolving then when you have those Saturday sit downs? Are you saying like we actually this doesn't work at all or we need to recut this in a specific way? Are you doing a lot of your work in those sessions? Yeah, I'm taking notes for everything. Mm -hmm. You know, and Spike is saying things like, yeah, no, 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 no. Don't use this take. Don't use this. This take is terrible. I know it's circled, but we got better takes. Don't even look at this again. Right. Um, or he'll we'll go through and they'll say he'll say on a particular camera move. Okay, you see this take. This is really where I want to start this scene. I want to start the scene here. Or he'll say I'm going to get out of this scene here. Or you know, and throughout you know, I'm making my own notes about what I feel, and he's telling me, you know, I like this thing. I like you see what he did just there. The only take he does this in, right? Or she does this in. Or you know, or or, or, or wait a second, this actor does this. It bothers me. Do not ever use this when he does this thing, whatever it is. And so I think, okay, it doesn't bother me, but man, it bothers Spike. So I got to cut around that. What What do you think uh, is sort of the primary role of the editor? Well, your primary role, a few things. One is to deliver the director's vision. You know, good director, you better be delivering his or her vision. You know, I've been really lucky to have friends who are great, Mira Nair and Spike Lee. I've been lucky to work with both of them uh, on, on multiple films, and they're great, and they have a vision, and I got to pay attention and get what it is that they're after here. And then beyond that, it is rhythm. You want to keep a rhythm. For me, film is music, and like the two, you have movements within a, within a film and movements within a symphony and um, highs and lows and pauses and points where, where the tempo is fast. Um, and then there's this other thing that is very hard for me to express, which is just a sense of moments. Are they working? You know, is this line coming through a moment in a scene. And sometimes it's coming down to recognize, even though somebody has a piece of dialogue, sometimes what they're saying is important to be on them because it has something really to do with that character and something about them. And sometimes it's about somebody else in the, in the scene. That line has an effect on somebody else. And you got to be sitting there looking at it and thinking at times, whose moment is this? Whose scene is this? And, I mean, even though somebody has hardly anything to say here, this scene is all about them. And now, and, and now we kind of stay here, you know? And beyond that, I would say that every once in a while, uh, your job as an editor is to improve certain performances. 
You know, a lot of the actors are great, but not every actor, especially in smaller supporting roles, is great. And so they're important to be there. But now you have to improve. Um, you have to improve a performance, and oftentimes you improve a performance by by using what other people are doing in that scene. Interesting. Meaning, cutting away from the performer yeah. to yeah capture yeah. a moment. Yeah, because I've I've done films where somebody's come back and said, "Wow, it's a particular actress. She was so good in that film." I said, "No, no, no. <laughs> Everybody else in those scenes were really good, and." And you just didn't feel like I was constantly on other, on other people. So I thought rewatching the movie. Not that Black Klansman had that. No, no, that, no. That, that no. was not. You don't have to throw anybody under the bus here. I'm not going. Um, I thought that rewatching the movie, there were two sequences that were particularly impressive to me. Um, the whole movie is great, but I wanted to talk to you about both of them. The first is Kwame Terry's speech and on the college campus, mm-hmm. and I thought particularly what you were doing, and I wanted to get a sense of how you guys built that scene. Because it's almost like, um, it's a cliche, but it's almost like portraiture. It's almost like painting, you know, especially when you're cutting out to the crowds and you're showing the people in the audience. Right. So how, how does a scene like that happen? Is that on the page first? or are Well, you just, I mean, the speech itself is on the page. Certainly, but it, all, everything know, we're seeing, is that identified? No, the portraits and things like yeah. that. No, that's not in the script. That's something that Spike has in his head. And he took, he took people that were in the crowd in that scene, took them into a room, as they were doing this, you know, as they were doing going through different setups, he'd grab them and go and shoot them individually, you know, and kind of direct them in very general ways, right? Uh, knowing, okay, somehow we're going to use this. We first cut the scene straight. Just have the scene. It's just, this is the speech. This is the crowd reaction. This is how Ron Stallworth has been uh, affected by it. Straight. And then Spike said, now is, now is the time to, to put in these portraits. Not completely knowing how this is going to work. I mean, he knew, I want to start, I want to start the first portrait here. And that was as much as he had really in mind. And then he gives, gives me leeway to go. And then he'll come in and tweak that. Whether or not, no, 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 we gotta, we gotta slide this back. I don't want to, I don't want to cover this line. We can go to, we can go to here, to this line, and then things like that. You know, and I started experimenting with multiple images and multiple faces that are married together and movements and things like that. And, uh, and, and trying to look through who works together here. You know, what faces seem to work together? And and it also goes back to all these years to, that we've worked, to, that we've done so much, so many films and so many other projects together, is Spike is going to have a pretty good sense of once he explains to me the basic idea, I'm going to be able to take that ball and run with it. This is kind of a simplistic question, but I think it's helpful to understand what you do. How long does it take to compile and compose a sequence like that? Is it days? Is it weeks? I, I honestly don't no, know. No, it's days. Day, five days? No, less. Okay. It can't be that long for me because I'm fast. I'm a very fast editor, probably because I don't think much about it, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> and I just I just go. Mm-hmm. And I don't do assemblies. I cut. I cut right from the get-go. From the very first cut, it's a cut. I'm going for a cut. Because, you know, when we do do the right thing, we didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't know you do an assembly. I didn't come up through editing. Neither one of us knew. So you just you just cut the film and you were like, this is the cut of the film. This is the cut, 
right? I mean, of course, then you move things around and tweak, and sometimes you move it a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you move it very little. Black Klansman was done very little. There was more tweaks than real cuts. But on December 8th, when they wrapped, we still hadn't seen about 50% of the, uh, of the dailies. And so we took a week to watch that footage. And then I went away and worked all the way through the, the Christmas and New Year's hiatus to show Spike on January 8th the cut because he wanted to see it on January 8th. But I did it, and he knew I was going to do it. I mean, I knew I was going to do it too. You know, but even so, there was a lot of stuff there that was intricate, like that stuff. Well, the Kwame Ture stuff with the portraits really was done at, in January after he saw the, that, first, that first cut. But other things like the Harry, Harry Belafonte telling the Waco, Texas story. This is the other scene I wanted to ask you about. And the Klan. The induction. Induction. And then the birth of a nation. And both and Harry talking about what it was like in 1915 when that film came out and seeing how that clan is reacting to it in the early 70s. I mean, that was another that was another place where, like, you know, I had to get in there, and, and but you know, not with a lot of time, not with a lot of time. I mean, it can take weeks to cut it. It had to be days. It's amazing. I think that's one of the kind of the pantheon Spike Lee movie scenes that he's ever yeah. made. It's such a it's great, really great. great moment in the film. It's great, yeah. Um, has it gotten faster for you guys or have there been times in recent years when you've been working on a movie where you kind of have to scrap stuff and start over or kind of reconstitute what you thought the movie was going to be? It hasn't so much gotten... I mean, listen, Black Klansman was fast. Yeah. And part of the reason it was fast is because I'm cutting on Avid. I love Avid. And it allows me to do a lot of things uh, very, very quickly. But... Even do the right thing. I mean, we were so green at the time of do the right thing. Uh, neither Spike or I knew that I was supposed to be cutting all the way through uh, the shooting of the film. I didn't cut anything. We saw dailies, and I think during the day I hung out, <laughs> you know. And then at the end, you know, when 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 he rapped, then I was supposed to cut. But I cut did the right thing in six weeks. Amazing, you know. But but the intensity of cutting film rather than cutting digitally. Cutting film for me was intense because I, I mean, I would have an editing room that would have rolls of film opened up to where I wanted to go to. It's a puzzle. Right? It was more physical. All, all, really physical, but they'd be all over the editing room and I would know where everything is. So nobody could talk to me. You couldn't say hello to me. Or I, it was like a house of cards that would fall apart. So I had this great assistant editor, Leander Sales who when he would see people that were like approaching the editing room because it was kind of this slightly glass wall that we were in, he would, he would just put up his hand and go, uh-uh. And he, would just, he wouldn't say anything. He would just, no, 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 uh-uh, no. You know? <laughs> he wouldn't let anybody come in because he knew that it was all delicate for me. But as long as I could keep everything there, I could cut the film very, very fast on this, on this eight-plate steam back. Um, and it was by 6 o'clock every day in those days, I worked between nine and six, and I was exhausted. At six o'clock, I was physically exhausted. But to some extent, you know, Spike got used to me. The day was over at six o'clock. Mm -hmm. And so, nobody's even all these years later, and, you know, they don't realize that, uh, you know, Avid is so much easier for me, and it's not, it's, it's, it's not so physically taxing. Uh, still, everybody's expecting, yeah, six o'clock, he's going to go. <laughs> You know? That's nice. That sounds like a civilized life. It is a civilized life. Um, this probably requires you to remove yourself a little bit from the way you see the big picture of this stuff. But 
What is it like for, comeback would be too strong a word, for, but for Spike and a film that you worked on with Spike to have such a moment like this, given that you've been with him through all of these phases of, of rising? I mean, even though neither one of us have gotten Oscar nominations for our work together, um, still the reception of some of these movies have been so big. This just seems to be sort of a part, a part of it, of of that experience. Uh, we've been we've been lucky, and also I think we've done good work, and and work that that has lasted so far mm-hmm. and do the right thing is still a film that people respond to and a film like 25th hour that did not do very well when it first came out but so many people over the years have come up to me to say that's one of my favorite films so i probably was going to do that in this conversation do you have a 25th hour story for me by chance oh god i, I must have a 25th hour story yeah. i do have a 25th hour story actually it was the first film that we did i guess the original Kings of Comedy was digital. But the first feature we did digitally was 25th Hour. And, I mean, we went kicking and screaming. Spike and I were kicking and screaming into the digital age. Man, we did not want to go. We did not want to go. No, no, no. Right? And, but finally, it was like, <laughs> you have to. You know, it just became too difficult to finish the movie. And so the very end of the movie was, and it was all shot in film. And the very end of the film uh, was um, this sort of fantasy sequence. The Brian Cox monologue. Right. You know, of what's going to happen to him in the future. They had shot it at 30 frames a second rather than 24. But when they got it transferred, when they transferred it to digitally, they did these, they, 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 they did drop frames where they just simply made these 30 frames 24. So what does that do to the film then? Well, what it does is that when you get out and and you're going to negative cut, the negative cutter comes back and says, this is not matching. And we said, what? How can it not match? And then we discovered, we discovered what they had done. They'd done this stupid thing because you got 30 frames in a second, but you've cut it 24 frames in the second, right? So you're actually losing six frames every second. And in those days, we still had the eight plate in the editing room. Because I think both Spike and I liked it. Old know, school. It's like, it's like the blanket, right? <laughs> that we could, oh, it's still here. You Safety, know? yeah. <laughs> right? But then we had to get the work print. We had to get that, that, that the whole end of that, of that m- movie work printed. And then we had to get it, you know, put in the sink. And then I had to recut it in film. And quite frankly... I loved it. I loved. I was like, okay, I'm not completely in the digital age. I'm still. I can still handle the work print, and and I had an assistant at that time, Kim Chisholm, who didn't had never worked in film. And she was constantly trying to play catch up in terms of how do you do this? How do you do that? You know? Um, are you are you at all romantic about that time and working that way, or is it just much well, better I, for it to be easier? It's better for me to be easier. It's better. It's better. uh, No, there's so many things you can do on Avid that you couldn't do in film. I mean, just you're talking about that that scene with the Kwame Ture and and those portraits. You know, I could create those portraits in Avid. If we were cutting in film, we would imagine things, but we would have really had to go to somebody else who would then have had to play around with things. 
with, with a, a look and let's how do we marry this and how do we marry that and and it would have been expensive and maybe you would have never completely got to wear something but not, uh, that that you really liked but now I can do that and play with it and Spike can come in and say I don't like those two people together replace him well the next time he comes in that guy is replaced um but I look good as a as a film editor in those days. <laughs> I look good. I could really handle an A plate. There was a there was um, a guy n- named Robin who was an editor at CBS, and I was I did one quick job at CBS, and one day Robin was sitting behind me and he said, "Did you ever think of your style as an editor?" And I said, "Yeah, you mean like jump cuts?" He goes, "No, no, 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 no. People are going to be sitting behind you." And you should, you should have style. You should develop a style. I thought, Robin, man, that's the best advice ever. And I developed a style. You could, you'd walk into an editing room and you'd see me cut in those days. You, you would think, man, he's good. All based upon nothing more than how I'm handling Just your, this. sort of your presence, your <laughs> no, physical how presence. I'm, how I'm handling this stuff, throwing it up, going around my neck, blah, 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 blah. blah. You, know, <laughs> I'm, you know, I had style. And people were always really impressed by that. And I was thought, thinking, what fools. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're not even looking at the cut. You're just looking at that. That I, You know, I have an ability to impress you with how I'm handling the film and the sound. So as, as we mentioned, you know, it's, it's basically 40 years between nominations here. Yeah. Uh, what is this one? I was, I was only six years old. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> You're quite person. a prodigy. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, what does this one mean to you? How, how are you thinking about it now? Well, you know, um, I can take this one in stride. You know, it's, it's really a great honor. And, and it's so satisfying that I came, especially for this movie. But in 1980, I was overwhelmed. And now it is, oh, this is great. This is great. I'm nominated for an Oscar. Oh, look at that. You know, but the other day I met the other, other uh, nominees at this um, ACE, the American Cinema Editors, at a cocktail party. And man, I mean, I have such respect for them as editors. And they're just a great group of people. A really great group of people, you know, and what and 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 what's nice about being at that event is this sense of such support among each other with the editors, such support and such respect, and that I'm bowled over by, and I'm so happy to, I'm so happy to be nominated with these people, and to be in their company. I I like them as editors. I like them even more as people. When you came in, you mentioned you're working on a film of your own right now. Can, I am. You, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes, I'm, I've written a script uh, called Son of the South, and it's set in Montgomery, Alabama in 1961. We're going into production in late March. We're in pre-production right now. I'm on the phone all the time <laughs> these days when I'm here in L.A. Um, it's about a guy named Bob Zellner. He was graduating at the top of his class from Huntington College in Montgomery. His grandfather was in the Klan. And a lot of things happened that spring and that summer that made him challenge his beliefs about race. The Freedom Riders came to Montgomery in May of 1961 as he was just about to graduate. And he ran downtown and pulled Freedom Riders, black Freedom Riders, out of that riot. And he was shocked to see a riot. 
And the rioters were his people. He was blonde, blue-eyed, six feet tall, country boy. And that was the kind of things that he began to witness that summer. And every time he came across something, the words that Rosa Parks said to him in the spring of that year, which was something bad is going to happen right in front of you one day. And you're going to have to make a choice which side you're on because not choosing is a choice. And that's really the theme of the movie. Look forward to that. Barry, uh, end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they have seen. So what is the last I great thing really you've seen? I really love Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yes! You're speaking my language. <laughs> Why did you like it? Oh, man, that is so smart and so inventive. Such great characters. And actually, I think it's the best edited film. Yeah, what, what, that's interesting. How, how so? What is that? What well, does that mean? People for an think of animation film? and things like that, uh, and something like that. That people, I say that, and people say, "Well, it's not edited." I said, "Wait a second. However, you get there, if you draw the edits, it's an edit. If I cut it physically on film, it's an edit. If I do it digitally, it's an edit. But if you draw it, it's an edit. And you see this stuff, these uh, these tr- these triplets that they do as in the midst of this action, and they never lose you. They never lose you. And it's this, sometimes this bizarre world they're taking you into. And I'm glad I'm not up against it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck, Barry. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. 